My grandfather said that if he was anything, he was a humanist. My mother was raised with the gods of Pegana by Lord Dunsany more than with the Bible. When my mother started working on the Ode on Reason and Faith, just as I was completing my undergraduate work, I started to see humanism as a real religion, even though I had not met any organized form of it yet. When, after joining the humanist community, my coworker told me that the problem with humanism is that you can't write a song about it, <laughs> my fate was sealed. Not only would I discover that I disagreed with this statement, but that I could write songs about humanism. A few years later, as I started my philosophical work in humanism, I started talking about a science of ethics. At that point, I realized that since science is descriptive, not prescriptive, a science of ethics would have to describe the human activity of creating ethical systems. This started think me thinking about the true meaning of religion and its relationship to science. From the humanist perspective, I have seen some of the best work on the relationship between science and religion from those of our friends who have been working on assisting parents who want evolution to be taught in their schools, but are dealing with very committed parents who feel that the teaching of evolution undermines the religious teaching that they are giving to their children. An interesting discovery in this work was to uncover the teaching of St. Augustine, who warned the church leaders of his time to avoid contradicting the findings of scientists. He explained that since, that aside from the fact that scientists could prove the truth of their discoveries, even more important was that scientists were not interested in challenging the work of the church. He understood that what scientists really care about is quite different from what religious people care about, and that these two endeavors can coexist without conflict as long as religious people do not pick fights with scientists. Another interesting discovery in this work was to note that by the late 20th century, scientists had adopted a pragmatic principle to guide them in their work, the naturalistic assumption. The naturalistic assumption cannot be proven and so is unusual as a principle of science. It declares that in scientific work, scientists should assume that all phenomena occur due to the working of natural law. This principle has two roots. First, the scientific method is well suited to discovering natural law, but will not work for supernaturalistic, for, for supernatural phenomena, since they are not repeatable. Second, the naturalistic assumption arose as a pragmatic principle to guide scientists in their work, because by the late 20th century, a surprisingly large percentage of new discoveries that had been made in science in the previous 100 years were made much more difficult if you did not follow the naturalistic assumption, while finding these discoveries was much simpler if you made the naturalistic assumption. This has been most marked in genetics, biochemistry, brain research, semiconductor electronics, nanotechnology, and computer science. 
It is instructive to see how scientists should answer any questions someone might have who is trying to investigate whether a miracle has occurred, as is done routinely by the Catholic Church in order to canonize new saints. When a suspected miracle is under investigation, if the investigator were to ask a scientist whether the event in question is a miracle, the scientist is required to answer under the naturalistic assumption, the most likely cause of this event is this naturalistic sequence of events that follow natural law. This is not really an answer to the question, although it is the correct scientific answer. As I pondered these observations, trying to gain deeper insight into the relationship between science and religion, I did what is normal for me, and I turned to questions of first principles, the principles that you start from in your thinking. What are the first principles of science and religion that eventually result in these differences in approach? It was easiest to start with the first principles of science. Science is a project that has been taken on by people to gain power over the world. Its success is due to its approach of trying to discover the laws of nature by which our world works. For the individual scientist, the commitment to curiosity about how all the phenomena in the world work is all-encompassing. The focus of the scientist is on the objective world in which we live, the world outside of oneself. Part of scientific training is to train the student to separate their subjective wants, desires, even prejudices from their more objective observations of the objective world. There is not much talk within science courses about the difficulty of separating subjective prejudices from objective observations. These courses merely emphasize the need for objective observations and talk about techniques that scientists can use to obtain more objective observations than they would otherwise obtain. Philosophers, on the other hand, have increasingly emphasized the impossibility of making truly objective observations, even while scientists continue to advance the boundaries of scientific knowledge at an ever-increasing pace. The questions of how we should use this knowledge is not really part of the scientific project. Although scientists are actively involved in helping people understand the issues that naturally arise with dangerous new powers that arise once we understand the natural law underlying our world. It is quite clear that religious thinkers do not have the same all-encompassing drive to learn about exactly how our objective world works. Why is this? What are the first principles of religion that drive them to a different way of working. At times, I've been struck by an interesting conflict between naturalistic humanists and even religious, even liberal religious people. The conflict over whether there are certain questions about our objective world which we should not ask. Usually, the issue is over whether we value the sense of wonder and awe. Sometimes the issue is whether the experience of magic is valuable or not. The claim is made that whenever we understand the natural law underlying a natural phenomenon, such as a rainbow, 
then we can no longer feel a sense of wonder about the beauty of a rainbow. I have certainly stopped trying to find the end of the rainbow. Just in this description, it is clear that a significant difference between religion and science is that religious people are concerned about how people feel about things. They are concerned about what people think. They are concerned about what strategies people use to deal with the problems of life. These are all subjective issues, not objective issues. A revolutionary idea that Felix Adler used to found ethical culture was the idea that our beliefs about the objective world are not the most important issues in religion. Rather, ethical principles are much more important. A later thinker, William James, in his 1902 work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, gives away in his title the importance of the subjective in religion. While William James argues with Felix Adler about whether morals are the primary concern in religion, William James abandons the traditional answer that religious beliefs are more important than ethics and rather talks about achieving greater well-being in sickness and despair as well as in health and contentedness. Thus, William James concentrates on the subjective effects of religion to define it and talk about it. William James' work is especially interesting since, as one of the deepest thinking psychologists prior to Freud, he was trying to take the scientific method of inquiry and apply it to religion as well as he could. It was not until the mid-20th century that psychologists started to be wary of creating theories about what goes on within our brains due to the inherent lack of objective observations on which to base their theories. Thus, William James speculates recklessly about subjective issues in his classic work on religion. He does so with such skill, however, that his work continues to be important today. Julian Huxley, as a biologist who was the first director of the International Humanist and Ethical Union, writing in 1941 in Religion Without Revelation, expanded on Felix Adler's idea. Like William James, Huxley was not satisfied with limiting religion to ethical concerns, although he agreed that ethical concerns are among the most important issues in religion. In the preface, he maps out the task before us. Once we have rid ourselves of this doctrine of a divine power external to ourselves, we can get busy with the real task of dealing with our inner forces. These are largely subconscious or latent. Any developed religion must find ways of helping the individual to face his subconscious and to realize the latent possibilities of his spirit. Helping the individual to realize the latent possibilities of his spirit. Thus, Huxley emphasizes subjective issues as being the key issues in religion and did not consider simple belief in naturalism to adequately cover religious issues. Both William James and Julian Huxley were talking about religion from the personal viewpoint. In fact, another important property of religions is that they are organizations of people. 
The very word religion has roots that mean the binding together of people. A religious organization binds people together. This is a very important objective property of religions. Once I started looking at religious organizations as being more important than their dogma, then the question arose, what ties together the members of a religious organization to give it its cohesiveness? What are the first principles that lie at the root of religious practice and identity? I have arrived at the conclusion that it is appropriate to declare that the first principle of religion is subjective human life. Religions are concerned with helping people live from a subjective point of view. This becomes much more clear once one follows the implications of such a thought. Subjective life includes our emotions, our wants, desires, and goals, the strategies that we adopt to achieve our goals. It also includes the beliefs we have about how the world works. Many humanists think that it is not good to try to control one's emotions, wants, or desires, but that we should concentrate on converting our wants and desires into goals, and that we have a lot of control over our beliefs about the world. We can see that ethics is a subset of these issues. Ethics specifies limitations on how we should transform our wants and desires into goals. Ethics are sufficiently objective, however, that it is an important subject for humanists to talk about among themselves and to try to achieve agreement about what our ethics should be. The idea that <clears throat> ethics can be somewhat objective if many people can agree about them is a subtle and involved issue that unfortunately I cannot expand on here. Another important subjective issue is that humanists believe in is freedom. That is, I believe that I as an individual have significant freedom both from the state and my religion to choose the goals that I will work toward as I live my life. The principle of freedom is actually an important religious issue. It is possible for religions to frown upon excessive freedom, especially from religious influences. Just because I believe in freedom, however, does not mean that I do not also believe in ethics. Similarly, it does not mean that I believe all strategies to be equally effective and efficient. In fact, humanists pride themselves on their skill at identifying efficient and effective strategies for achieving worthwhile goals. It is appropriate for humanist organizations to talk about which strategies are more efficient and effective at achieving goals than other strategies, and which goals are more worthwhile than other goals, even if the discussion is outside the realm of what we consider to be ethics. Here at WES, we have numerous groups that meet along these lines, Emphasizing the importance of, of establishing and maintaining good relationships is a subject we have been very active in teaching each other about. Humanists have come to adopt a very simple strategy toward establishing our beliefs about our objective world. Humanists declare that the scientific project has been so successful that we need to turn to scientific discoveries to discover what we should believe about how the world works. Some religions declare that part of their teaching includes facts about our world and how it works. 
They see the advances of science as challenging their own teaching and worry that these scientific advances may also undermine their teaching on more important issues, such as the principles of ethics or mores that strengthen their religious organization or the stability of the family itself. Some of my friends have been very frustrated when they have talked to advocates of other religions about various beliefs about how our world works. Their natural strategy was to adopt scientific methods and ways of thinking. They argued the pointed issue from this standpoint and were then frustrated when their solid arguments, one of the skills taught in science, were not accepted and trains of logic were explained to them that they considered to be completely invalid. This is a symptom that religion is not really about discovering how the objective world works, but is about something else. Once we consider that perhaps it is about living life subjectively, then we can see how such arguments presented to us are more reasonable. The real issue is, what strategy is the person using to approach the questions about the real world that are under discussion? Is the person concerned that the question under discussion undermines his belief in the objective existence of God unless it is answered in his way? Is the concern that if his belief in the existence of God is not correct, then his thinking about the first principles of ethics are also not correct, and similarly the mores he follows beyond the limits of ethics? Or is the concern that this belief about objective reality is necessary in order for the person to be able to deal efficiently and effectively with major challenges of life, such as disaster and death of a loved one? If the nature of religion is that it assists people to live life successfully, then these kinds of arguments become more valid. Although we can recognize that different religions will approve of different strategies in addressing all of these kinds of issues. <clears throat> Typically, a single religion establishes strategies for thinking about and establishing goals and the plans to carry out the goals that form the essence of the living of life. At the dawn of the 21st century, almost all religions are sufficiently respectful of the achievements of science that they are willing to allow their members to engage in the advancement of science and to approve of their members looking to science for almost all issues with regard to objective reality. Some religions do not follow the advice of St. Augustine, however, and have reserved some specific questions about objective reality that they declare the right to answer regardless of the discoveries of science. Once I understood this, I increased my understanding of other people and reduced the frequency with which I engaged into pointless discussions about the nature of our objective world with people who were really trying to talk about subjective issues. A very important difference between working on objective issues and working on subjective issues is that the amount of agreement that we see in science is actually astounding. It is a property of objective work that it is easier to come to agreement about issues, about how the objective world works, 
because everyone is actually interested in the same thing, and it only exists in one way. Subjective issues are much more prone to, to disagreements that cannot be resolved. Thank you. Even in principle, we see this most clearly in the abortion issue. At one time, I was a pro-choice lobbyist. I have met pro-life people who think deeply and compassionately about our world. And enough powerful attempts have been made to bring people together on this issue that I am very comfortable declaring this to be an example of where we need to agree to disagree. This is a subjective issue. And our failure to find agreement here is symptomatic of a lack of a universal mechanism for agreement about subjective issues. The issue of freedom is related to the lack of a universal mechanism of agreement on subjective issues. If we should be free to act within some reasonable limits, then we should be free to disagree about what we should do. Given the principle of freedom, it becomes more interesting to ask why we find as much agreement as we do about subjective issues such as ethics. Unfortunately, this question also, although very interesting, goes far beyond the scope of this talk. I can give another talk on that issue. <laughs> All right. I've found it useful to think about different religions as really being different languages for talking about subjective life. I follow the strategy of interpreting all statements that I hear from a different religious perspective as being about issues of subjective life, not issues of objective reality. I have found it easy to join together in mutual understanding and respect with people of other religions when I adopt this strategy. It is even possible for me to respond back to them from the humanist perspective, as long as the statement about the, from the humanist perspective is about the subjective issue that I thought the person was trying to talk about. It is naturally important to start such a discussion by establishing areas of agreement before beginning to explore areas of disagreement. Such discussions can be productive and increase mutual understanding, especially when I concentrate on the immediate concerns, proceeding step by step in my thinking to transform problems into solutions. Rather than identifying fundamental differences that cause our differences in approach, it is useful to identify more particular differences in strategy that more directly deal with the issue under discussion. This makes it easier for people to agree to disagree. I've come to realize that neither beliefs nor ethics are the first principles of living life. Just as the existentialists discovered that existence precedes essence, so I am ready to conclude that first we exist with our feelings, our hopes, and our fears, but we live within the world within which we must work to sustain our lives. The first principles of life are related to how we think about our feelings, our hopes, and our fears, 
and how we work in the world. How will we gain knowledge about the world? How should we interpret our feelings, our wants, and our desires? When should we work in the world to satisfy our wants, and which of our wants should we decide to ignore or postpone? To me, the first principles here are really strategies for addressing these questions. When we adopt a strategy of acknowledging our feelings as facts of existence rather than things that we can control, this shapes the nature of our life. When we adopt a strategy of learning as much about the objective world as we can to increase our ability to manipulate the world, this shapes the nature of our life. It is from this strategy that humanists derive their beliefs about objective reality. Once we have considered a broad range of strategies for solving the problems of life and discovered that some supposed solutions that seem to be efficient and effective are actually not at all efficient and effective at dealing with the problem at hand, then we develop ethical principles that help us avoid these self-defeating strategies to solving the problems of life. A religious group is especially important at helping us decide what ethical principles we should adopt because ethics are difficult to invent by trial and error. The lessons of many lifetimes are very helpful in showing us which ethical principles really are important and which ones are not helpful. This analysis suggests that there are many other concerns that it would be appropriate for Wes to consider as possible areas for discussion and work. Wes already has discussions about strategies for relating to other human beings, both at work and within the family, to help us live more successful lives. The fact that these teachings go beyond the boundaries of ethical concerns does not need to concern us. Since these issues are important, in helping people live successful lives. I encourage my fellow members of West to give some thought to additional teachings or discussions that we can have to assist our members live more successfully. I believe these insights can help us understand the true meaning of religion and help us make ethical culture even more successful in the 21st century. Thank you.